Take your Bibles and open them to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. We're in a series on Check Your Heart, and uh, it is important for us to check our hearts because they are easily deceived, and it's easy for us to get off track. We need to evaluate our lives and our walk because the world is watching us. They are paying attention to see if we're the real deal or if we're just pretending that we're somebody that we're not. Now, in the time when John was writing this letter, it was a common thing for people to go and sit at the docks and at the ports and watch people come in on ships and try to evaluate where they came from. So they would look at their clothes, they would look at their skin tone, they would listen for an accent to try to determine where someone had come from. Uh, I always love to do that when we're in Israel because oftentimes there are groups there from Ethiopia and from Kenya and uh, other countries in Africa and from parts of Europe. And it's interesting to try to observe and see the difference in styles or accents or languages or whatever it might be. I, I'm a people watcher by nature. Uh, when, I, when I was in youth ministry, I learned that there are only so many roller coasters you can ride. And at that point, you need to just go sit down on a bench and watch people. By the way, people watching is fun. It's really interesting. And, and so we would just sit and watch, and I would try to figure out who the youth ministers were, especially if we were there on like Christian Family Day. Try to figure out who the youth ministers are. They're the ones that have a whole little huddle of middle school girls following around, pulling on their sleeves saying, ride this one with us, ride this one with us, ride. And so I say, that's a, that's a youth minister. I, I actually know how to recognize a pastor at a theme park. Most of them have on black leather shoes and white socks and shorts, and very pale legs. But there was this thing that happened, and it often happens, where you hear something or you see something, and you say, I I'm not familiar with that. I I've never heard that before. I don't, I don't recognize that. And that's what you have here in the first part of chapter 3 and verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Now the King James is actually very good there because it says, behold what manner of love the Father has given us. What possible sort. And so this word would be translated by the people that are watching at the seaport. I, I can't figure out what manner of person that is. Where they're from, I, I don't recognize that accent. By the way, you do know there's a difference between a North Georgia Southern accent and a South Georgia Southern accent, don't you? You do. There's, tell me I'm not the only one, please. You do know that there's a difference, don't you? South Carolina is different. They don't know what barbecue really is. They put all kind of weird stuff on their barbecue. And Tennessee's different. Mississippi's different. In fact, in Mississippi, nobody knows what anybody's saying. I grew up there when I found out there were no walls and the borders were open, I got out. It's that simple. 
This word, that what manner or how great, is a word of something that is uniquely different, distinctively different. These people are different than any people I've ever seen before. And, and John is pointing out that we are uniquely different from anybody else in the world. Mark chapter 4 and verse 39 uses this thought. Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? We've never seen anybody like him before. 2 Peter 3.11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So let's look at chapter 3 through the verse, three verses, and then we'll keep going. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we, notice how many times he says we here, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, three things here. Verse 1 talks about what we are. We are children of God. We're not rejects. We're not accidents. We're not afterthoughts. We were planned in the heart of God that we would come to know Christ. And when we did, we became children of God. That's what we are. Whether you feel like it or not, if you're saved, that's what you are. You're a child of God. You're a child of the King. Secondly, what we will be. We will be like Him. There's coming a day when we will be like Him. Now, we're not there yet, and, and we all got work to do, and the older we get, the less we feel like, you know, on the outside we're becoming like Jesus, but hopefully the older we get, the more on the inside we're becoming like Jesus. What we should be, purifying ourselves. We should be daily dying and purifying ourselves to be more like Christ. People should look at us and they should see something that would ask them, what is different about you? What manner of difference is it about you? You see, in Jesus, we can reclaim what we have lost that sin has taken away from us. And so, first of all, there's a new position. Every one of us in this room is a member of one of two families. You're a member of the family of righteousness or the unrighteous. You're a member of a family of the father or of your father, the devil, as Jesus said, even of the Pharisees. In verse 1, he tells us that this love of God is a gift that we have been born into the family of God. Now, guess what? Once you've been born into the family of God, you cannot be unborn. I mean, there's a reason why Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus about what it meant to be born again, to be born anew, a new transaction, much like birth is a transaction and a transfer from the womb of a mother into the arms of a mother and a father. This is a change that happens in our lives. He says, see, behold, take a serious look at this. We are called the children of God. Such we are fixed on him. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. 
So he's telling us what the child of God ought to be doing and how the child of God should be living. And there's two things. First of all, God's power created us. You were created by the power of God. Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah chapter 1, he was formed in the womb. God's power created the earth. God's power created everything in creation. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is about. God's power created us. God made man in his own image. But that's not the best story. The best story is God's love made us his children. God's love made us his children. You know what the number one thing that children in America want? They want to know that they have the love and the blessing of their parents. They want to know that they have the love and the blessing of their parents. God's love made us his children. It, it is interesting to me that here's John, the apostle of love, the apostle whom Jesus loved, and he loved Jesus. I mean, you just see the intimacy in this inner circle with Christ, with Peter, James, and John. But John kind of sticks out. He writes the gospel. He writes first and second and third John. He writes the book of Revelation. I mean, he writes a substantial part of the New Testament. God chose to reveal himself and the revelation of end times to John. I mean, this is a significant man. And he's never gotten over the fact that Jesus loved him. He's the one that tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You, you know, sometimes we get over the fact that God loves us. We're kind of like the old couple that said, the woman said to the man, you never tell me you love me. He said, well, I told you at the wedding, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. Sometimes God just wants to hear that we love him and that we understand that he loves us. We, we have a new name. We are children of God. We are no longer sons of wrath. We are no longer sons of disobedience. We are no longer the, just the sons of Adam or the sons of the devil. He loved us so much, he calls us his children. Now that ought to get a hallelujah out of somebody. Do you realize Christianity is the only faith in the world that invites us to come into an intimate, loving relationship with our God. All others, God is distant deity. He is to be feared, and we should fear God and reverence God. But no other faith allows their followers to come into the presence of God and sense the love and acceptance of God. That's incredible. He says, and such we are or so in fact we are now here, here's a quote that i want you to get and and i hope you have time to write it down the son of god became the son of man in order that the sons of men could become the sons of god the son of god became the son of man in order that the sons of men could become the sons of god he has done something new in our lives. He has made us into his children. We have the potential to live up to all that Christ has poured into our lives as we obey him and we yield to him. Now, God has reserved some surprises uh, for glory. 
and I'm glad he has, that, that means this is not the best. The best is yet to come. One is, we shall see him as he is. You see, Jesus is no longer the meek and lowly Jesus that walked around the hills of Galilee. He is the exalted Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father in all his glory. You, you read about him in the book of Revelation, and you see the glory that is in him and comes through him. We will see him as he is, First uh, Peter 1.8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We shall see him as he is. Number two, we shall be like him. We'll be like him. I mean, this life is not it. We will be transformed. There'll be a new body. Thank God. <laughs> There'll be a new body. I mean, I, I don't know if you've reached this point or not, but I was, uh, I was with Charles Lowry and Griffin Jones, Griff's a pastor in, in Texas this week for a couple of days, and, and I dropped a quarter uh, on the ground. And uh, Charles said, you dropped a quarter. I said, at my age, it's not worth leaning down to pick it up. <laughs> I don't stoop for anything less than a dollar because <laughs> I'm not sure I can get up. We will be like him. You realize what that means? Just a taste, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow, no more darkness, no more enemy, no more sin to deal with. Glory after glory after glory after glory after glory. We will be like him. Right now we know we're in process, but we will be like him. Now this has got several implications. First of all, purity of character, 1 Timothy 6.14, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's purity of character. If, if I'm going to be like him, I should start working on that now in pure character, in pure purpose, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. You realize that you are a citizen of heaven. You're also a citizen of earth. You're a citizen of Georgia. You're a citizen of some town in southwest Georgia. But you're also a citizen of heaven. You have a dual citizenship. Heaven and earth. Pure purpose. I want to live like a citizen of heaven. I want to live like a person who's on earth on his way to heaven. That's a good purpose. And then pure motives, Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He says in verse 3, 1 John 3, that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. I, I remember one time when I was with Vance Havner, who was my mentor for about 15 years. And uh, I mean, I, I could have crushed him. He was so small and, and so frail, and he scared me to death so much because when he opened his mouth, I knew I was typically in trouble and about to be corrected. And I heard him say in a sermon one time, he said, people come to me and ask me the wrong questions. They always ask me the wrong questions. He said, they say to me things like this. 
Can I do this and still be a Christian? Can I do that and still be a Christian? He said, you're asking the wrong question. The question you're asking me is, how much like hell can I be and still go to heaven? He said, nobody asked me, what do I need to do to be more like Jesus? He said, I never get asked that question. What do I need to do to be more like Jesus? It's always somebody looking for loopholes. Can I do this? Can I do that? And still be a Christian. Listen, if you're looking for loopholes, as John Chris would say, check your heart. Check your heart. New practices, beginning in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So what is sin? Verse 4 says it's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So we're going to look at what that means in just a second. But what does sin do? It deceives us. It deceives us. It always promises what it can't produce. It always offers more than it can give. And it always leads to bondage and to more sin. It deceives us. Why do we sin? We're not abiding, verse 6. We're not dwelling with God. We're not living like children of God. When we sin, we're not living as if we are in understanding of what it means to be in communion and in intimacy with God. So when John uses this word lawlessness, he's not saying we are breaking the law. What he is saying is we have no regard for the law. No regard for the law. Don't have any interest in the law. We, we don't think it has anything to say to us. Now, we are all saved by grace through faith. But that doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments aren't still in the Bible. They're still there. Why? To show us what sin is. To show us when we break the law that we need to be back in right fellowship with the one who gave the law to show us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. You cannot get saved by keeping the law. The law doesn't save. The law shows that you need a Savior. And we are saved by grace, but this lawlessness is doing what I want to do with no regard for consequences because, in effect, lawlessness is saying, I have become my own God, and I make my own rules for how I live. Satan doesn't just work to get us to sin. He works to get us to act like we're God. Isn't that what he did to Eve? Adam and Eve, you will be as gods, knowing good for me. Well, that sounds good. I'll be like God. 
So I'll just break all the laws and make myself God. Remember, he's not saying we don't sin. We talked about that in chapter 2. He's saying the real Christian will not be ruled by sin as a life principle. I'll sin, but it's not the driving force of my life. It's not what I do every day in and out. God has put in me a desire to be like Jesus, but not just a desire to be like Jesus, but the power to live the way Jesus has told me to live through the Holy Spirit. God has given me a new want to. God has given me a new want to. Used to, I didn't want to. Now, I want to. Used to, I wanted to go and cave into peer pressure and do whatever my peers were doing and say whatever they were saying and go with the crowd. Now, I've got a different want to. I want to please God with my life. And so, that want to shows up in three areas. First of all, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We're a new creation. Ephesians 2.10. God has given us a new heart. Jeremiah 24.7. God has given us a new heart. And God has given us a new spirit. Ezekiel 36.26. Now all the verbs, in fact if you look through 1 John, almost every verb in 1 John, and I think maybe all of them, are present tense. It's continuous action. It's not that I made a decision for Christ over here and I haven't done anything about it in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but I think I'm still going to heaven when I die. John is saying that if you want to know that you're saved, and this is important, if you want to know that you're saved, you are continuing to do the things that you started when you became a Christian. It is continuing evidence in your life. These verbs are present tense, continuous action. Children of the devil are obvious. Just like children of God are supposed to be obvious, children of the devil are obvious. Now, <laughs> how many times has a commercial come on TV about some television show and you just go, no, nah. because of all that you see as you're watching this advertisement trying to get you in is darkness and evil and sensuality and immorality and violence trying to draw us in. I mean, what's wrong with Andy Griffith? I mean, Terry's not going to get up and cook breakfast in a prom dress, but leave it to Beaver might not be bad every now and then. Kind of bring a balance to the hemisphere. Everything about the world is obvious. We don't have to be, we're not ignorant of his devices. It's obvious. Oh man, that's trying to suck me in right there. That's trying to pull me in. What is the world trying to do? It's obviously to us trying to pull people in because here's the way the world thinks. The more people that act like us, the more right we must be. But you can be in the majority and be wrong. The majority in America believe a lot of wrong things. But the children of God are obvious and the children of the devil are obvious. In verses 4 through 6, Christ appeared 
to take away our sins. Now, the emphasis here is not on sins, plural, but on sin, singular. He died to pay the price for sin. Sin is the root. Sins are the fruit. There is a root of sin in us, of depravity in us, rebellion against God. But the fruit of that shows up in a lot of different ways. Here's one of the dangers. We are beginning to portray God in American Christianity as this lenient dad who never says no, who always gives us whatever we want, whether we need it or not, and who wants us to be his best friend, not Lord. We become like lenient dads that don't discipline. I mean, I don't know, but maybe, maybe sometimes I think I'm the only one that's getting out. Uh, you, you ever go somewhere and you just see kids just going nuts? And the parents are just standing there. And they're just, huh? You know, everybody in this mall knows your kid needs to be taken outside. Really? Yeah. Pretty much disturbing the whole neighborhood. Lenient dad, that's not God. God is holy. And he wants us to live apart and above from sin. And he has ways that he expects us to live so that the world looks and says, now there's an obedient child of God. That's, that's not a child that's running rampant. That's an obedient child of God. And they are walking through this life, and yeah, they mess up sometimes, and they need discipline sometimes, but on the whole, the trajectory of their life is they want to obey God. Now, look at the verse 9. This is continuous action. This is the way it can read. No one born of God is content to keep on sinning. For God lives in them, and he cannot be content to keep on sinning because he is born of God. No one who abides in him sins. Verse 6. He's not talking about sinless perfection He's talking about the direction of our lives, that Jesus died not just to overcome the penalty, the weight of sin on us, but the power of sin over us. So we come to a new power. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. John's logic is this. Remember, John argues like a woman. Never argue with a woman, men. It will get you nowhere except bologna sandwiches. John argues like a woman. It's intuitive. He says, well, anybody who knows God would just know this. Anybody who has a relationship with a father would know this. Paul argues logically. John argues intuitively. So John's logic, if you will, is that if you're saved, you don't want to sin. And when you sin, you confess it, 1 John 1, 9. And you get it right because you have an advocate. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. Because you know you have an advocate and you know you have an adversary, you go to the advocate to overcome the sin. That's his logic. 
If you don't confess your sin, if you don't stay up to date, then you ought to check your heart. That's the way John argues. He talks about Christ. I love this verse. He appeared for this purpose. There's a reason. No, I know. He came to save us. That's not the only reason he came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, in our culture, through bad preaching and no, not thinking like we should, we've kind of made the devil and God co-equal. And that there's this eternal struggle going on, and it, it's going to be a battle until the end, and just before Jesus comes back, we're going to kick a field goal, and we're going to win 17 to 14. It's going to be close, but we're going to win in the end. Yay, we win in the end. It's not even close, folks. That's listening to the lies of the devil, that you think it's close. Now, it looks like he's winning. But if you read the last two chapters of your Bible, there is no devil in the last two chapters. Guess what? We win, and we win big. He is... Satan is not co-eternal with God. He's a created being. He does have power. He does ask for permission to sift us. He does go after us. But in the end, his power is no match for the power of God. The word destroy does not mean annihilate. It means to render powerless. To render powerless. To make his power inoperative in your life and in my life. So if I cave in to the power of the devil, it's because I've believed what he said to me and I don't believe what my father has said to me. You see, my father runs the yard and he can run anybody out of the yard anytime he gets ready to. And the devil is on a leash. I used to have a cocker spaniel growing up, and we didn't have it. We couldn't afford a fenced-in yard, so we got one of those things that screwed into the ground, you know, and you, you had to work it into the ground, and then you put a chain on it. Well, my cocker spaniel, the the traffic from the shipyard came right by our house, and if you wanted to get out, you had to get out before the shipyard traffic started, or else it was 30 minutes of bumper-to-bumper -bumper on a neighborhood road, and you just sit and wait. Every time a new car moved in front of the driveway, my dog, <laughs> collar grabbed that neck, he'd back up a little bit, just, just by the time he gets backed up, oh, here's another one, maybe this time. I have a question. If a dog catches a car, what do they do with it? <laughs> Satan's on a leash. He can only go so far. And Jesus has rendered him inoperative. Let no one deceive you. Don't let anybody tell you, a counterfeit Christian teacher that tells you that you can sin in your body because it doesn't affect your spirit because the body and the soul and the spirit are all separate. Don't let anybody convince you that you can't be an overcomer. Now, we're all tempted, but we don't have to yield. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. James 1 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now there are two words there in verse 14. Carried away and enticed. These are hunting and fishing words. Any men in here hunt and fish? Then you understand the meaning of these words. If you want to catch a wolf, you've got to put a certain kind of trap down and you've got to get him to go just slightly off the path. And it's not the trap that gets them. It's the scent of what you put down that moves them just off the path where you can clamp that trap down on their leg and the trapper does not, as Ken Jenkins says, ever think about how much pain he causes you. It's a hunting term. It's also a fishing term. You learn to use a certain kind of bait and a certain kind of hook and a certain kind of lure to catch a certain kind of fish. The devil knows the bait that you fall for. And he knows the bait that I fall for. And the bait I might fall for, you might not fall for. But the devil knows your weakness. He knows where you're stumbling. He knows what gets you. But God has rendered him powerless. The only way he can lure you and hook you and trap you is if you get off the track. That's the only way. The only way he can do it is if you start thinking, well, that looks good. That seems like that's nice. This seems like a good distraction. And you end up getting trapped. Now, because of time, I want to give you six questions. Six questions to check your heart. And you may want to write them down, or you may want to get your phone out and Zoom in on the screen. There'll be three on each screen. Sometimes that's easier for people to do. And uh, question number one, am I saved or just pretending to be a Christian? Am I genuinely saved or am I pretending to be a Christian? Question number two, is there evidence in my life that I am daily dying to self? Is there evidence in my life that I am daily dying to self? Not just occasionally, but daily. Am I going before the Lord to say, Lord, I want to please you today. I want to please you with my life, with my lips, with my attitudes, with my actions. Is there evidence that I'm daily dying to self? Question number three, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Anything that I know that I've not confessed because I've not been willing to get it right. Remember, the world is watching. We need to check our hearts. Number four, is there any habit I need to confess and forsake? Any habit I need to confess and forsake? Number five, when temptation comes, do I play with it or do I flee from it? When temptation comes, do I play with it or do I flee from it? And the last one, does the world notice any difference? In me. The world is watching. Does the world notice 
any difference in me. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, some of our ministers are going to be at the end of the aisle, and in just a moment, uh, Mark will begin to sing a very familiar song. And when he does, I want to encourage you to step out and come and say, I need to trust Christ as my personal Lord and Savior today. I need to give my life to him. You can't fight the devil by yourself. You can't overcome sin by yourself. You need Jesus to give you victory over sin and over self. And so I'd invite you to come. For many of us, we have bought a lie. We bought a lie that we cannot be overcomers. We have refused to believe the promise that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We've refused to believe the word that says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Here's one of the ways I've seen that go south. Somebody will say, you know, resist the devil and he will flee. That's not the way that verse starts. That verse starts with submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. We have to submit to God to be able to resist the devil. And the devil's winning too many victories, and he's got too much influence, and he gets too much credit. And we, the people of God, need to say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to take on the authority of your word that you came to render the power of the devil inoperative. Yes, he is running, but he is on a leash. And I choose to believe you and listen to you as my loving Heavenly Father more than I choose to believe the devil who wants to seek and kill and destroy. So today, I choose Jesus for salvation. I choose Jesus to say, Lord, I'm tired of living a defeated life. I want to live in the power that you have for me to live. As Mark sings, you step out and you come right now.